I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Fortner. And this is Ashes Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. The more astute listeners out there may have realized that no, that was not actually Daniel and myself voice. Those war imitation bots created to lie to you about what we're actually saying and doing here and maybe one day take over the recording of the show to free up tons of spare time for both of us, I think. But yes, that's right. This week we're discussing lies, false truths, half-truths, and the post-truth world that we are quickly heading to with the help of technology, media, and the internet at large. I thought my voice sounded pretty good, actually. Sounds like you and Stephen Hawking's had a love child, let's be honest here. But the technology is getting That's much better. way too soon. <laughs> these things came together uh, very easily. It was easy to make these fake voices. What, it took us like 30 seconds or 60 seconds of recording samples to create this stuff using a, a piece of software called Lyrebird. Well, and I think that's one of the things about this that we want to point out is those voices, as awful as they might have sounded, yeah, we just took 60 seconds of our voice. We uploaded them to some free online resource and it spat out anything we typed into it to kind of mimic our voice. And this isn't even the state of the art of this technology, which is something we'll explore later on in this episode. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that, hmm, this might have some interesting effects as we move forward and this technology becomes better and more ubiquitous. But let's not dwell on this for the moment. We'll get into this later on in the episode. Well, David, you mentioned fake news is going to be one of the topics of this show. And it's true that we do live in a time of quote unquote fake news. Now, everyone has heard that phrase at this point, and it typically refers to literal fake news, stories and articles that are published that are simply fabricated. They're not true, but they serve a political or economic purpose. And they get distributed throughout the web with the help of algorithms and by targeting groups vulnerable to being manipulated by these false claims being asserted. It's easy for these things to happen because we live in the, quote, attention economy, something we brought up in the Facebook episode, where so many things are vying for our attention. Shoe companies, movies, TV shows, politicians and political groups, YouTube streamers, on and on, that the path of least resistance to our attention by all these interested parties gets reduced to the immediate and the emotional. What can startle us, stimulate outrage, pull at our curiosity? What can make us click this so we don't click that? And all this is aided by algorithms behind the scenes, constantly evaluating what works and what doesn't, what can stimulate a reaction in 500 milliseconds instead of 700. And what this is doing is conditioning us, instilling in us the feeling that there is so much information that we don't have time to explore anything with patience and in depth. Now, what does this have to do with fake news, you ask? Well, such a distracting environment, driven by those who desire to direct our behavior, has opened wide the door for people to introduce false information and spread that information by effectively gaming the system. Now, a simple example, which we'll explore in more depth later, comes from a group of teenagers in Macedonia. They realized they could make money, and a lot of money, by getting Americans to click on fake articles to generate ad revenue during the 2016 presidential election. And David, we discussed Facebook in episode 15, Terms of Service, and the algorithms they use to curate our feeds that decide for us what should and should not be seen based on what it thinks will engage us. Well, this is a situation with those Macedonian teenagers that those types of algorithms gave momentum to those false claims. 
The kids designed stories they knew people wouldn't be able to resist. People clicked on them. The algorithm said, oh, these people like these articles. So it exposed them to even more similar users. And next thing you know, you got a feedback loop of polarization and misinformation. That's right. Let's look at what's going on here. We have a system of interested parties. And those parties drive people's attention towards information that will benefit them. And because of the intense competition for that scarce attention, this attention economy, sensationalism, emotional manipulation, and short-term conditioning become the methods used. Algorithms spend the whole time monitoring the effectiveness of these methods, evolving them into better and better tools in terms of their ability to manipulate us. It's very easy to see almost immediately how this drives polarization and division in cases where you pit one side against the other, like in politics. Complex and nuanced debate is time-consuming. It requires patience and a lot of research, and therefore it's unsuited to this system. Instead, each, quote, side is presented with the most outrageous and simplified caricature of the other, which then gets evolved and exploited by machine learning until the only picture one group has of the other is a ridiculous, false, and emotionally charged impression, with no substantial dialogue bridging that gap. But a lot, and I mean a lot, has been said about these fake stories. And we're not here to rehash the same fake news analyses that everyone has already heard. No, instead, we believe that this is just the beginning of a trend that stands to get a lot worse and a lot weirder, both in scope and in method. Now, Daniel, you mentioned weirder. And one of the things that really stuck out to me while we were doing research for this episode was a talk that Adobe gave introducing a new product that still hasn't hit the market, but they wanted to demonstrate. And that's something called Adobe Voco. Now, this is a tool Adobe has designed that makes it very easy to change anything somebody says. Let's stop. Let that sink in for a second. You load your audio into Adobe Voco. It analyzes it and displays the text of the audio. This is something that you can already do in a variety of Adobe applications, in Audition, in Premiere. So that exists now. It's, it's in the applications now. It analyzes the audio, turns into text, and makes it easy to edit. It's useful for things like podcasters, people doing interviews, or quickly cutting down to just the parts they need. But what happens when somebody says the wrong word or doesn't say something exactly correctly or you want them to introduce a question that happens a lot? You'll ask them an interview question. They just start answering without introducing what the question is so the listener doesn't know what they're talking about. Now, Adobe Voco is designed to help fix that. You can come in and change a word. You just select the word you want changed, type the new one in, and this software has analyzed this person's voice in the interview, and you need, what, like 30 minutes or something? Is that right, Daniel? Yeah, when they exhibited this technology at some big event, I think the sample they were using was about 30 minutes worth of someone's voice that they could manipulate flawlessly. Yeah, so 30 minutes of voice, it analyzes it, knows how to do it, and then you can just type in words. And literally, you could say, oh, they said factory, but they should have said industrial. So you just type that in, and then it generates a flawless, seamless version of that voice saying a word that maybe doesn't exist anywhere else in that recording. And it saves your edit. It sounds like a great thing. Yay, editors everywhere rejoice. We don't have to go back and re-record this. But David, isn't inflection and the context of words in sentences so important? I mean, that's one of the hard things about editing audio, right, is getting those micro inflections in voice just right so that it flows in a natural way. Right. Language doesn't happen in just single words. But sentences are almost crafted. They go up and they go down and questions in differently than, than statements or exclamations. And so making sure that your sentence that you generate sounds seamless and flawless and genuine is a difficult math problem. 
But Adobe solved that through this analysis, looking at the way that the context of the sentence works already and knowing the correct phenomes, pronunciations and slight utterances, differences in pronunciation that allow you to have a seamless, authentic sounding speech generation. And if the software doesn't pick it up exactly perfect initially on the first pass, well, you can just click that word, open up a second screen and see a, a huge list of example inflections until you get the one that fits in exactly perfect. It doesn't take a evil genius to see how this technology could be very much abused. Audio is not the only technology being used, David, to create these false and fabricated realities. A couple universities, including Stanford University, came out with a technology just a couple years ago that allows you to do the same thing that Adobe Voco was doing with voice for people's faces. And what's really crazy about this is we've all seen CGI in movies where a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of computers at work to render certain images has produced scenes in movies of people that don't necessarily look that great, but totally artificial faces. We see the same thing in video games. But what this group has come out with is a technology that allows you to superimpose an actor's facial expressions and mouth movements onto your target face in real time on video. So what that means is I have a video of the president giving a speech and I sit down in a chair and I point a camera at my face and the president can be speaking on the television right next to me. And as I move my face, this camera captures my facial expressions and then changes the president's face to match exactly what I'm saying while retaining the image of the president. Okay, so we've got this very basic technology out of the way. There's a number of other technologies that are similar to these that we'll explore as we go through the episode, but we just want to establish these sort of facts, at least initially. So just like Photoshop forever transformed how we think about images and what's real and what's not, well, that technology is finally caught up and is being brought to the world of audio, of voice recordings, of speeches, of conversations, as well as video, something that previously had been far too expensive, time-consuming, or just physically impossible to fake in a convincing manner. But as these tools get cheaper and more democratized and easy so anybody can do this, which is something that's already happening, we'll explore that later in a very interesting, weird twist of technology and ethics. As this stuff gets out there into the world and anybody can do it, and the idea of propaganda suddenly becomes a hobbyist pastime, well, how does that change things? I think the biggest way that this threatens to change our world, David, is just in our sense of what is real. And that has huge implications for our political environment, because we've had so many claims already about the role that fake news and disinformation and misinformation has played in the political elections in America. This is not just a concern for American politics, but it's happening all over the world. So it calls into question what is real and what is fake when we are consuming information online. And as we discuss the information among ourselves that we have found online and through other media sources. But this adds a whole nother layer to it when we're looking at someone give a speech on TV, for example, we don't have the guarantee that that's actually happening. This is already going on. And this tech that we just outlined, the audio, the video, and some bot stuff that we'll talk about, has the ability to leverage the misinformation already being used to epic proportions. So recently, a U.S.-based NGO called Freedom House did a study that suggests that at least 17 countries in the past year have used dishonest tactics to influence elections. I love that phrase, dishonest tactics. What a PC way to say that, but keep going, sorry. And outside election times, at least 30 countries 
have used a diversity of methods of disinformation and propaganda to get unpopular policies passed, to repress criticisms of government, and other unpopular things. And these tactics include paying large groups of people to write fake stories, using armies of bots to promote propaganda, and the use of social media and search algorithms to keep those fake stories and to keep that misinformation alive in our social media environments. So let's focus on bots for just a second here, because the idea of this has really dominated what the media has been talking about over the past year, year and a half, especially starting with the 2016 elections, which is something we don't want to dwell on too much because there's so much gray area in that conversation and a lot of political divisiveness. But the fact is, this stuff happens and it's happened for years before bots were even a thing. So this isn't a question of new techniques, but it's a question of scale. It's been common for many countries to pay what are basically armies of people who infiltrate online, have conversations, run thousands or hundreds of accounts, pushing a narrative for the government to serve whatever purpose they want. This has happened in the U.S., this happened in Russia, this happens in Israel. Israel is famous for paying college students to defend Israel online. But this was something that was always limited by how many people can you hire to do this? But bots and semi-AI technology, let's be clear, it's not advanced general AI, but this machine learning sort of smart Markov chain generated conversations that get close enough to sounding human. Well, that's really enabled this practice to be scaled up to an industrial scale. And that has huge effects on our political conversations and society and what we talk about as a whole. Not least of which because it allows you to simulate public movements and public interest. If I'm a senator sitting in the halls of Congress and all of a sudden my aides are telling me they're getting phone calls from concerned citizens and they're getting flooded by emails of people who are concerned about a certain issue, that might influence what I believe my constituency cares about and what policies that I end up supporting. But in this environment where it's so easy to create fake profiles of people and fake voices around their concerns, those interests could be completely made up and funded by a special interest party that doesn't have the citizens' best interest. Well, you know, it doesn't even have to be a fake person. So you remember the FCC filings about net neutrality and the accusations that some of these things were filed by bots and weren't real people. Well, I went and looked up my name on this filing after it all was said and done and the comments were locked and the FCC put them out there for review. Search my name because I had filed one supporting net neutrality. But lo and behold, did I find there was another David Torsivia who filed something against net neutrality. I look at their conversation and I click on it and it's an address that I used to live at years and years ago. Some bot had imitated me, put somebody else's voice in it and was arguing against something that I steadfastly support. David, it was you all along. It was you and your fake voice that ruined net neutrality for no, us here in the in United States. That's fake news. Fake news. <laughs> Actually, that brings up another point, David, is how all this affects our trust in information, where maybe you really did create a comment saying that you were against net neutrality, and maybe you're a famous politician, so people actually care about what you do. Well, now you can just say, hey, I didn't do that. That was fake. That was fabricated. I didn't make that comment. Someone else must have written that in my name and posted it, so uh, don't believe that. I still support net neutrality. And what does that mean for our ability to hold politicians and the people who lead us accountable for the things they say and the things they do? That's a really fantastic point, especially as this audio and video technology becomes much more advanced, easy, faster, and more simple to generate these very accurate imitations of what has happened, or not even imitations, but complete falsification generations that aren't even based in any sort of reality. 
So we remember during the 2016 election, the audio tapes that came out about Trump, so allegedly uh, grab him by the pussy, whatever. Well, one of the responses Trump had was, you know, this could be a fake. I've talked to technological experts and it is possible to imitate somebody's voice and it would be not impossible, technologically speaking, for somebody to have falsified this information. Say what you want about it, but he's not wrong. And as this technology becomes more widespread and people are aware that this technology exists, then it'll be easy for politicians, even when something is accurate and true, to say, well, you know, I didn't say that. That's generated. This is fake. And when the technology exists and everybody knows the technology exists, well, that's enough. Because the side that supports somebody can say, oh, yeah, of course, this is fake. My candidate, my person would never do this. And the people against would say, oh, of course they did this. I hate that guy. Well, you know, now every single narrative just reinforces whatever personal ideas you have. And if you disagree with that, then it's very simple to say, oh, no, that's not true. It's made up. It's fake. I see a big picture issue surrounding this crisis of trust in the information that we consume. And I think we've mentioned this before. We want to do an episode in the future about media in general and about these filters and systems in place to make sure that the message that the media promotes are in the interests of our government and the corporations that back our media companies. So. Not so much that there's a conspiracy going on to frame the information we consume on a large scale, but there is a system in place that makes sure that the messages that our governments and our companies want us to hear get promoted by the media companies that we listen to. And I see this erosion of trust as another way to support that system because as it becomes harder and more costly to validate the authenticity of certain messages and of certain videos and certain interviews, we may increasingly be forced to turn to some of these better funded institutions, which can afford the type of technology and verification protocols to guarantee us that what they're showing us is real. So it's kind of ironic, I think, where this could open us up to an opportunity to where those who can guarantee that what they're promoting is true have the biggest power to also manipulate the messages that they present us. And that can be hugely problematic because so much of how we're influenced today is not so much in the information that is presented to us at all times, but a lot of times it's the information that we are not presented. It's the information that's held back. But to be honest, David, that's a discussion to be had about media that we can do a whole show on. But there is also another aspect of erosion of trust that I think we should touch on, and that's the fact that it can create apathy. If we don't know what we can trust and what we should be skeptical of in our media institutions, it's possible that we, as a public, may choose to just opt out and just not care. That threatens to erode the very base of democracy itself. Right. There's not enough time in the day for us to look into and research every single piece of news or article or image or video that appears on our endless timelines, whether it's from Facebook or Twitter or Google or wherever it's coming from constantly. There's so much stuff we can't look into. And this is something we've leaned on the media for. But when our erosion of trust hits the media as well, when they get duped into running with fake news, made up stories, well, that's something that happens. And when it happens enough, can we trust anything? In the conspiracy world, this has been the case for decades, but it's really exploded in the past few years. I'm sure everyone at this point has heard about flat earthers and it kind of started out as humorous. I thought it was a joke and maybe maybe it did start out as a joke. You know, honestly, I think it's a psyop by some intelligence agency to measure how these fake ideas spread. 
but maybe that's another conversation. Explain what you mean, David, because this sounds like a conspiracy in of itself. It's a conspiracy within a conspiracy, <laughs> which is the best type of conspiracy. But basically, I'm intelligence. I'm CIA. I'm NSA. I'm FBI. Whatever I am. FSB. Some country somewhere decided, let's see how easy it is to spread an obviously false idea using the internet and how this idea spreads, who influencers are, what the best methods of pushing this, whether it's videos, text, forums, conversations, bots, Twitter, whatever it is. How can we get this to push something that's obviously false and convince people that this is true? And the intelligence applications of a study like this are obvious to anyone. So if it's something that's less obviously wrong, well, it's even easier to push this narrative. So let's take something crazy, something that we've known for thousands of years is not true, and that's that the Earth is flat. And also, there's no motivation for anybody to lie about the fact that the Earth is flat, which is another thing, but... You mean there's no like economic incentive in that of, hey, the only way we're going to sell our product is if people believe the Earth is flat. Yeah, exactly. There's no reason to. And so people... Unless you sell gravity shoes. Yeah. Uh, there's like secret places in the middle of Antarctica or there's ice walls or people come up with crazy explanations to explain why this is the case. But in the end, they're just reaching. And there's a lot of really great content that's been created about flat earth, things that sound sort of quasi interesting. And if you don't know enough science, you're like, you know what? Yeah, actually, this does make sense. There are holes in these things. Why? Why does it feel like I'm flying or when I'm in an airplane, things look flat, blah, blah, blah. And when you look deeper into it, all these things fall apart, but it's just enough interest to get the casual observer to buy into this. And so we actually started looking into this more when we went to YouTube researching this episode and just literally typed in the words CGI fake because I wanted to see what people were talking about with fake computer generated imagery. And almost every single one of the posts that popped up, and maybe this is my personal filter bubble that was doing this for me, but it was all about flat earth. Oh, look at these fake SpaceX videos. Look at these fake NASA videos. The Earth is actually flat. Look, they, they messed up on this one frame, blah, blah, blah. What's had happened with this conversation is that the idea that we can't trust this media has enabled people to buy into the fact that, oh, yes, the world is flat and everyone is lying to us because they have the technology, Photoshop, video editing, that enables them to fake these things and lie to us on an industrial scale. So your conspiracy within the conspiracy is basically there's a chance that the intelligence communities of our governments wanted to measure how easy it is to spread something that is so obviously false, people couldn't possibly accept it. And then it got out of their hands and now it's its own crazy thing with basketball players and stuff supporting it. Well, that's interesting. It goes back to Bernays and his thought leaders. There are a lot of celebrities in different fields that are big proponents of this. You know, a famous jujitsu star is a big spouter about flat earth. And so that could certainly be a reason for that. But also, Perhaps they saw this technology coming and said, well, everyone's going to be talking about this technology that can fake reality. Mm -hmm. So let's distract people, perhaps, to things that don't matter so that they don't focus on the fact that their governments could be faking things for political means. There you go. Now, that's the conspiracy in a conspiracy in a conspiracy. We're going deeper here and it never is going to end. But yeah, I think that's absolutely part of it. And especially in the conspiracy world, there's a natural uh, idea that I don't trust this. And maybe that's been spawned out of the endless decades of UFO fakes, fake photographs, fake cryptozoological sightings with Bigfoot, with Loch Ness Monster, where people, their initial instinct is to look at something and say, okay, why is this not real? And then try and reach for every single thing they can about it until in the end they're like, oh, okay, so this is maybe unexplainable. Well, David, let's leave it up to our listeners to 
go down a conspiracy rabbit hole and, and report back. But I think we should take a step back because whether or not there is a conspiracy within a conspiracy within a conspiracy regarding this fake news. This shows another layer of that conspiracy, by the way. This is the real fake voices that we're using. The beginning fake voices were just the fake, fake voices to think. But there certainly is a benefit for governments that want to use oppressive and repressive methods mm-hmm. to have a public that is apathetic to their sources of information. Yeah. Because again, it goes back to that media propaganda. It's sometimes it's the information that people are not aware of that allows you to get away with the most. And we've talked about on these shows about the things going on in Xinjiang, in China, in terms of their surveillance and control. Mm-hmm. And that's not being reported in our Western media. I mean, you can find out about it if you know what to search for. Yeah, but compared to the conversation of Stormy Daniels or or something, whatever the popular thing at the moment is, it's basically impossible to find. And much less, I mean, China's a major interest of world news. So if you go somewhere like Myanmar and look at the genocide that's happening there currently, well, odds are nobody's talking about that. That's another good point. 700,000 people in Myanmar being affected by military genocide that I'm ashamed to say I don't really know much about. And these are things that we, if we want to be informed citizens, have to search for. But again, a lot of this disinformation is driven by search result algorithms, by social media algorithms. And related to the fact that we may be pushed into this environment where we're only trusting a very small collection of sources. Well, China right now is using this very topic of fake news and fabricated stories as justification for increasing their online censorship and surveillance. So there was a conference late last year that people went to, and because they were foreigners, normally they would be allowed to use the internet and and to visit different sites. But even there, the Chinese broadband services had blocked things that they didn't want people to see. And again, they used the fact that people are pushing false narratives online as justification for blocking websites, saying, hey, we're protecting people. And it's easy to see how all this, this erosion of trust, this apathy is giving oppressive governments powers to influence and shape our behavior like never before. I think we're looking at a future where an erosion of trust in our information sources leads to a dependence on a very small, centralized group of media companies, in addition to overall apathy, which threatens to keep people misinformed about things going on in the world that they should care about because caring about things is the only way we get change to come about. Yeah, Daniel, that's absolutely right. And that's a major reason that we have this show in the first place to try and push some of these stories without the uh, lying optimism of the media because people don't want to hear bad news all the time. And and because of that, they don't realize how big of a problem some of this is. And they're not intense in searching for the solutions to this. And because of that, we lose time. And time, a lot of times with these sorts of problems, end up meaning that we lose lives down the road. Well, solutions is something we always try to hit at the end of this episode, and we have some ideas for ways that we can move forward in the face of some of this tech. Should we move on to something, another aspect of this, David? I want to talk about social. And this is my favorite, weirdest part of this, because I saw it happening live um, on Reddit. What did you see happening live? So there's something called deep fakes. Are you familiar with this, Daniel? Deep fakes. Um, That's where you go really deep in a submarine to find your latest no this is just this is you reaching for a bad joke but what it is so there was a subreddit on on reddit and i stumbled across it one day because some of the technology subs were talking about it and it's something called deep fakes 
And the deepfake sub was named after a machine learning program that somebody put together used TensorFlow. And what you would do is you would load it with faces and typically celebrity faces. You would download hundreds of a celebrity's face. So I'm going to go download a million Emma Watsons or a million Natalie Portman's, put their faces in there. And because they're celebrities, there are lots and lots of face photos. So you download hundreds of these or thousands of these and you run it through the software. And this is called a training data set. And so the software analyzes it and generates an amalgamation of what this face looks like. It knows what it looks like from different angles and different lighting conditions, how it moves, how it smiles, how it frowns, what the eyes do, how it blinks. And it learns all this and it can create a digital replication of this face. Okay, so that's the first step. And once you've got this data set created and trained, well, then what people would do with this technology is they would go and find a porn video of somebody who looks sort of like whatever actress they're interested in, and they would load it into this software. This software analyzes this porn video and finds the actress's face and it analyzes it from every angle, lighting condition, and builds a sort of idea of what this face is doing. And then very simply, the third part is it says, well, let's take this actress's face that we've trained and apply it to the face that we've recognized in this video. And then within a matter of hours, because this does take a while to run, you now have an extremely convincing fake porn video of this famous actress. And this blew up overnight. And it was very simple for people to do this. Well, I guess it wouldn't have to be an actress, right? Just anybody no, that you well, have. I mean, that's where we're getting to with this, especially with things like Facebook, where Facebook automatically, you can click on somebody's profile, see all the pictures they're tagged in, download them all, load them into the software and get this very same approximation where you can generate just porn of anybody man, woman, child, whatever. And there's lots of weird legal questions of what this means. Is this illegal? How much do we own our personal individual visage of ourselves, which legally we do, but that's another question with recreations of holograms and stuff. Like in the Super Bowl, they wanted to have a hologram of Prince, but the the estate said no. But anyway, this idea of what do we own? And when anybody can create these amalgamations, composites of ourselves, and it looks very convincingly like ourselves, well, what does that mean? The sub was shut down for obvious reasons, but these things are continuing to be created. And porn websites have jumped on and created subsections for deep fakes. Their websites and communities were continuing to generate this because even though the initial way to get into it has been censored by Reddit, well, it still lives on on the internet. You can't shut down something like this. The cat is out of the bag. Pandora's box has been opened. Now we're in an era where custom generated porn of anybody you know is about to explode into the mainstream. Now, that's weird. Well, this isn't the only case of using fake people and fake women to cater to male fantasies, for lack of a better word, because Ashley Madison, that website that matches people looking for extramarital affairs, men with women, women with men, men with men, women with women, all outside of the whatever supposedly sacred bond of marriage that they claim to have, but got everything hacked, right? Well, that's what they got huge publicity for is the fact that their database was hacked and users information, including their email addresses, their contact information, their credit cards all got leaked. And there was a huge scandal around it. Well, perhaps what deserved an even bigger scandal is the fact that Ashley Madison has been using thousands of fake profiles. These are bots to message millions of men to get them to spend more on the website. And the whole thing is driven by economic incentives. There's not enough real women on the website. And even in cases where there are women, the engineers behind this website have found out that they can just make more money by using bots because the bots are more engaging with the men. They're a little bit more flirtatious. They say, hey, just spend a couple more dollars and I'll talk to you some more. Maybe we can meet up. (laughs) 
And a lot of people were spending tons of money on the website for interactions with these people that they thought were real, but were totally fake. Well, then the, then the website ethical response is like, well, if people are enjoying having conversations with our bots, well, you know, who's to say that this isn't the, the beneficial service that people are, are enjoying and getting whatever money that they put into it out of in terms of it. Yeah, Ashley Madison leading the charge in Androidian relationships of the future. Well, this, but- this is a common scam, too. I mean, creating fake women. And it's almost always women, though it does happen with men. You know, they reach out to you on email or they or Facebook message or whatever, and they're not a real person. They're fake, typically run by slave labor farms almost in third world countries where the cost of labor is extremely cheap. And there's men and there's women and there are old men, old women, whatever it is, pretending to be someone young and attractive, reaching out to lonely people online, writing fake emails, writing fake love letters. Let's meet up. Oh, I can't meet up. I can't afford a plane ticket. Oh, buy me a plane ticket. No, just wire me the money. Then I'll buy a plane ticket. And people get scammed out of thousands of dollars from these fake uh, romance things. And this is very similar to what Ashley Madison was doing. But now it's being expanded into not just individuals doing this in these, these labor farms, but instead automated by bots. Once again, I think the point of all this is this is just an example of how these technologies are becoming more accessible and of lower cost so that not only are companies using them like these dating websites, but those users, those ordinary people that you talked about making those deep fake porn videos. And these technologies are only going to become more accessible. And while a lot of it can be entertaining and fun, there are some serious threats associated with this. And one of that is automated, intelligent, personalized phishing. David, what is a phishing scam? So phishing scams, they can vary in their complexity and what they're trying to do. But the basic idea is I'm purporting to be somebody else or something else, a bank or an individual. And I reach out to you in order to get you to do something that's bad for you. Sometimes it's give me money. Sometimes it's click on this link and turn over your password. Sometimes it's give me your social security number or your bank account or send me money, whatever it is. Or in the case of those nutrition activists in Mexico, it's click on this link so that we can install malware on your phone and track everything that you do. Mm -hmm. So in the past, it's mostly been, I know a very little bit of information about you. I know your name. Most of them will start with that. I know your name and your email and maybe your phone number. Some things that you can find online very easily. But as this information gets easier to find online, collect, combine, and generate something, well, now you've got a little bit more knowledge about somebody. So this has happened to my grandparents. They got a call. My grandpa got a call. Really? And he said, please, grandpa, it's me, David. I've been in a horrible- This happened? Yeah, this happened. I've been in a horrible car wreck. I need you to send me some money because I don't want to tell my dad because he's going to be so angry at me, which is a very great line because everybody knows like a grandchild is not going to want to talk to their dad about getting in some situation they don't want to. And they're praying on the- when did this happen? This happened like a year ago. Somebody was pretending to be me and it wasn't my voice, but on a phone, you know, you can sort of disguise it. And especially when these prey on the elderly, they have worse hearing, it's degraded. And so they sometimes hard to tell. I mean, like I'll call a grandparent. They don't recognize it's me till I have to explain who I am. (laughs) Is that you, Michael? It's a sunny boy. No, but uh, (laughs) I love you, grandpa. But um, what happened was, luckily, he realized that, well, my grandson lives in New York. He doesn't even own a car. And he'd heard of these scams before. And he realized that he was being targeted. And he just hung up on them and told them, don't call me or scam me again. But imagine this same thing happening, except with this Adobe Voco technology, with these abilities to generate very accurate audio recordings and at real time. 
So now I'll talk to uh, somebody's grandparent. And because people have so much content online, dumb podcasters who put out hours and hours of their voice samples. Just tons of beautiful voice voice samples just begging to be stolen. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, exactly. We've given our voice away so much. But YouTube videos, Instagram, voice recordings, uh, phone calls, all these things can be collected, combined, and used to generate. And, and some of these technologies only need a couple of minutes of audio recordings, one to three minutes. I mean, the, the one that we used in the beginning of the show, while it is primitive at this time, only really needed less than 30 sentences to generate this stuff. That's only a couple minutes worth of audio. And degrade it through some technology, play it to an elderly person, and very quickly you can see how this can get out of hand. And there is nothing that we have that's preparing us for this. These phishing scams are already a huge problem, and when they can be customized with accurate sounding audio, well, that's game over. I don't think it has to be the elderly, David. If I got an email or I got a voice message tomorrow that sounded just like you and it said, Daniel, hey, um, I have I had an accident. There was a subway problem. Can you please send me this? Blah, blah, blah. Obviously, I would be skeptical after listening to this, but maybe I wouldn't even think about it. I say, oh, my friend's in trouble. He needs help from me. I'm going to do it. And I actually brought up this point with my mother and she actually had a really good idea for dealing with this in the future, um, which is when I was a kid, we had these code words. Yeah. And it worked like this. My parents told me, Daniel, if anyone, a stranger ever tries to pick you up and says, your parents told me to pick you up, they're in trouble and you need to come with me immediately. Well, just ask them what the code word is. And if they know it, you know it's real. And if they don't, you know, run away from them. Mm -hmm. And that's immediately what she thought of when I told her about this. And I think that's actually a good idea is that we should have a code word, David, that if I need help from you, if I'm in an emergency and it's real, this is a word or a phrase that only you and only I know so that we can trust. I think that code word should be... No, you can't say it on the air. Then <laughs> you're, you're ruining it. No, we can trust our listeners. Oh, They're that's not... true. They're not going to scam us. Uh, <laughs> but this is something that goes back to intelligence agencies who have had to deal with this technology for decades because what they have in terms of able to generate this and the funds to generate these fake voice recordings, these voice style transfers, vastly exceeds what is openly and publicly available in the world for the rest of us. And so, like Daniel said, you would have these code words between agents where they would say something. If they said one word, it meant everything's fine. If it said another, they say, don't listen to what I'm saying. Uh, sometimes code phrases, simple ways of saying hello. I mean, it gets complicated. We don't need that. But just having a single word that identifies you where I would say, hey, Daniel, it's David, dolphin. And then he would know that it actually was me. This might be something that we start going to and doing all the time. There are some more maybe interesting technological fixes, but without that integrating into almost every single piece of tech that we have in our lives that we communicate on, well, this is a very simple solution that works really well in the meantime. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about ways you can take advantage of people with this technology and also, for some reason, a lot about sex and dating. Well, I want to continue that a little bit more right here with our billion-dollar idea of this episode. So entrepreneurs out there, get ready. This one's going to be great. So we all know Snapchat with its facial recognition mode. You click on your face, hold it there. It does like silly things. You wear like a silly mask and whatever. And as much of it as Snapchat is an intelligence company, they have huge contracts with U.S. government intelligence departments, and they are soaking up all this facial recognition data don't use snapchat uh that aside some of these things and the reason people use these faces so much is because it actually alters your face so the very popular much maligned dog face snapchat filter 
It adds a little puppy ears and a little puppy whatever. Uh, well, it also drags your face, makes it slightly longer, intensifies your cheekbones, and makes you in general more attractive, which is why so many people use it. Even if they don't realize what's going on because it's masked in terms of these 3D add-ons, the ears, the nose. Well, it's also making you, for lack of a better word, sexier. Well, it doesn't take a very large leap to imagine taking these technologies, shifting them into an app that does it without the little add-ons that show you that this is in fact a fake thing. So I should be able to take a picture, a selfie, and it just instantly makes me hotter. And there are apps that do this, but typically they push it too far so people realize what's going on. But what happens when it's a very subtle thing? It makes it easy to lie, to catfish, especially when so much dating happens online. And those pictures are your initial contact with somebody and so important to that. Even more, taking this technology to a sexting level, if I take a full body nude with this machine learning, body enhancing technology, well, it's not hard for it to make me more tan, to give me abs, to make my arms look more defined, and of course, to make my dick look bigger. This technology <laughs> is coming. It is going to be worth billions of dollars. It already exists. I don't need that technology. Yeah, well... Some of us do, Daniel, but it's coming out there. It can make your tummy smaller. It can make your, your boobs bigger. Whatever it is that you want, that you feel bad about, this technology is going to enable us to feed into those fears we have about our body that we aren't hot enough in whatever right way that we want to attract this person with and make it very easy to lie automatically with this. And for those people running those troll farms, those bot factories far away where they're trying to capture people, catfish them into sending the money, well, it's going to be that much easier with this tech. It is coming if it doesn't already exist. The technology is out there. Somebody just has to put the little bits and pieces together. And we're going to have lies in sexting, even more so than our lighting and our body poses already do. Well, David, those are great personal reasons why someone might want to use this tech to make themselves look better. And how does that play into this culture of individualism, of consumerism, of these values around things that just don't matter, that's eroding our idea of what it means to be connected to people in a real way as opposed to a, a fake way, a sold way. I think there's huge discussions that should be had around that. And I think people should think about how all this could affect the way we view ourselves and interact with other people. But there's also, you mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, legal frameworks. And I think there's going to be a problem as this tech enters the court systems in terms of evidence. We already pointed out in last week's episode with Mariah while you were on vacation, David, about how the Supreme Court ruled that evidence obtained illegally can still be used as long as police were trying to follow the law. And police justify that because they say, look, this technology in general just evolves so fast that the legal framework does not have time to catch up with it. And I wonder if we're going to face the same thing with this fake technology or real technology creating fake things as applied to the legal framework we have that results in people going to prison. Or worse. Or worse. You know, forensic evidence, for example, we've talked about this off air, David. There's a lot of problems with it. And we've all heard of cases of people who were in prison for 20 years based on DNA evidence that was later found out was not accurate at all. And they weren't guilty of committing a crime. Well, we place huge weights on video, photographic, and audio evidence in courts in order to convict people. And if we're dealing with technology that can create fake audio, fake video, and given the fact that our courts move so slowly at evaluating this technology, and those who are trying to defend themselves that don't have enough money don't get the best representation, I think 
there's huge opportunities for abuse in that system. Yeah, so much of our court system is based on what can we see? What evidence is there that shows that this is 100% factual? And a lot of that is CCTV, a lot of it is audio recordings, a lot of it is photographic evidence. Because as we know, through decades of research and experience, well, fact of the matter is eyewitness testimony just isn't that accurate, even if it's the gold standard of a lot of court cases. Well, because of that, video has taken over as the de facto thing. But even without this, video can be misleading, it can be lies, it doesn't show everything that's going on, and we interpret it as truth, even if it maybe isn't. And so when we started researching this episode, I looked at everything here as this is terrible. We're facing a terrible apocalypse of information of news coming in. But some of this, I don't actually know if it's such a bad thing after looking more into it and thinking more about it. And one of these areas that that's the case is here in court. So right now, our legal framework is built around having these de facto evidence that you can't disagree with, audio recordings, video recordings. And because of that, we've seen a lot of pushes like in police departments for body cameras. And these are one of the one areas where people are doing video recordings correctly, at least in terms of verifying what you're seeing hasn't been altered with. A lot of these video cameras are recorded with a cryptographic hash showing that it has not been edited or altered, which is something we'll talk about later in terms of solutions to some of these problems. But still, even with that, body cameras don't do a great job of showing everything that's happening. The New York Times did a great piece on this showing a hypothetical police shooting where the cop was running a body cam, but they also had other cameras positioned around this situation showing how, depending on what perspective you looked at, who was at fault, whether the cop was guilty or whether this individual that was hypothetically shot by the police officer was in the right or was in the wrong. And depending on which direction, which video you looked at, you saw very different stories. And so maybe if we get to a point where we don't trust any video, we're just because there's a video, something we accepted as definitive fact. We get into an area where we analyze these things more like they should be as a sort of gray area where some things are correct, some things are wrong. And we're in a very Rashomon situation for fans of cinematic history where we see a murder, this very famous film by Akira Kurosawa. And this story is told from seven different perspectives. At the end of the film, you're sort of grasping at who is right and who is wrong. And I mean, it's a silly fictional example, but it's much closer to the truth than simply relying on a single or maybe a couple angles of video as definitive factual proof just because it was recorded. We need to remember that even in this situation where we think we know what's going on, well, video isn't so trustworthy, even without all this editing that we're talking about earlier in this episode. So let me just guess where you're going with this, David, because you said you think this technology could be a good thing. Well, you just said video is not trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at a future where video can be edited to even present something that looks real that's not real. And you think that's a good thing. Is it because if we lose faith in something that's already flawed, we'll stop using it in a way that has been misleading us for a long time, we just didn't realize it. Yeah, that's a really excellent summation of what I'm trying to say here is that video is inherently flawed because it purports to show truth. But reality is complicated. There's a lot of different angles, gray areas, things we don't see, things we don't know, motivations, and tiny little details that we miss out on that contribute to a larger actual mystical truth. Because is there a truth? I don't want to get too philosophical with this, but of what's going on. And the less that we trust video in the first place, the more that we question it and saying, well, this is just a singular part of that truth. Well, the better off we are as a society and very much so in our legal framework. 
Of course, uh, the courts aren't designed for that, even though they existed for hundreds of years without this video evidence. Well, it's really shifted in the past few decades, depending on this stuff. And we're going to have to go back to a way that frankly worked quite well before this. And we'll recover, but there's going to be a lot of legal storms and, and confusing areas to navigate our way around along the way. But I think we'll, in the end, we're going to get there and it's going to be better off because of it uh, if civilization doesn't collapse before then anyway. There's the dark David that I know. There I am. I'm back. <laughs> let's 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 keep going though. I don't want to get too bogged down on this. Let's now that we've finished listening to that fake news, David. Yeah. <laughs> with his good news. Was that even me or was that a voice recording of me generated by some third party? Who even knows? Let's keep going. Just quickly, we want to touch on a couple economic concerns before we tie this all up. Because while we've talked a lot about social, political, and legal frameworks, a lot of the motivation of this technology is, in the end, ultimately economic. And a lot of this might be kind of obvious that, of course, a lot of this is driven by financial incentives, but it's worth pointing out. So we mentioned those Macedonian teenagers, and, and that's just a small part of a larger troll farming operation that has been going on in Macedonia. But we shouldn't just target that country. It's a niche that a group of people found in that country, and it spread to a lot more people. This practice of creating fake stories, sensational news to drive people to click on things that they could then generate ad revenue from. But this is happening all over the world, obviously, and will happen increasingly as there's more and more money at stake here in controlling what people do and controlling what information people see, because that ultimately influences their behavior. And their behavior drives purchases, it drives votes, it drives all the types of things that those in power want in order to maintain power and to grow their interests. So while we're here talking about fake news, one of the bigger problems that we actually maybe even encounter more routinely than this fake news are fake reviews. There's a huge problem on Amazon and other websites of just most of the reviews that you see for products are lies. This is true on Yelp. This is true on Amazon. A lot of these things are just written by bots or people paid in these third world labor farms to generate lies about the product in order to sell it. And this happens a lot in app stores as well, even in things like social media posts. If you want to get upvotes for Reddit posts, you can buy these very cheaply. It's like $5 for like 1,000 upvotes or 100 upvotes or something. And by purchasing these social endorsements, whether it's from fake friends or just strangers on the internet, well, products can be pushed higher up and you're more likely to buy them because one of the major things that influence people to purchase products is people telling them that this product is good. And whether that's AstroTurf bots writing comments on websites, posting to communities about purchasing things like on Reddit, buy it for life, for example, or posting actual reviews on the websites themselves saying this is a great product in order to bury bad reviews or move it higher up in algorithm ratings. This is a giant problem. Because we're not getting the best product a lot of the time. We're buying the one that the producer of this thing decided to take the least ethical process in pitching that widget to us. Preying on that human heuristic social proof. Exactly. And in doing so, are we probably getting the best product if the person producing that product is so willing to jump into a black hat gray area method of pushing their wares? That is a good point that if a company is willing to go to insidious measures to manipulate us into using their stuff, they're probably also willing to skirt the lines of standards in order to create that stuff for us in the first place. And that also goes back to Bernays, which is sometimes it's more useful to just change people's habits and their entire lifestyle so that they are forced into doing something, into buying something that they otherwise don't even realize is not the only option to them. 
obviously another aspect of this that we kind of touched on is the intellectual property component. And this is something we'll have a much bigger show on. David, you're very um, immersed in this topic, but we talked about how this technology can be used to fake or to generate the likeness of someone in things like film. And that calls into all sorts of questions about what is it that we truly own in terms of a person's likeness and mannerisms? Is our image truly our own or can it be bought and sold by entertainment companies that want to capitalize on that for future profits? And what does that mean in terms of the way we commodify people? When you can take a person and their likeness and now craft any personality that you want out of them, any image that you want, any facial expression, any audio, then every single bit of that person becomes a commodity, becomes something that can be crafted. I think that's dangerous for our conception of, I mean, really, this may sound a little cheesy, but what it means to be human, where we can sell every part of what it means to be a person. I think that has the potential to erode the value that we place on those aspects of being human. These are great questions, Daniel. It's something I want to devote at least a single episode to in the future, especially the IP relationship of all of this. What we own, what is the intellectual property of ourselves? That's a huge question and something that is well outside the scope of the tail end of this ever-lengthening episode. But these are things to start thinking about now. And if you have thoughts listening to this, well, let us know because we want to integrate these thoughts in this episode when we talk about these very subjects. But moving on from that, maybe we should start talking about what it is that we can do for this incoming post-truth world? What can we do, David? That's a great question. And it's what we try to ask and answer at the end of all of these shows. And the thing that comes immediate to mind is we need to, again, just raise the value that we place on real world, genuine interactions with people, focus on connections with people, the communities that we can build around them, and try to step away a little bit from this technology, except where it's absolutely necessary. We have to remember that technology is ultimately a tool, and tools serve the values that we have. And that's the order it should be. Values first, and then tools to enhance those values. So if technology is being used in a way that's not enhancing our values of human connection, if that is a value that we have, I don't want to put values on on anybody here, but If that's a value that we have, then we have to evaluate them along those lines. But maybe more practically and more immediate, in addition to those secret code words that we discussed, journalist Cheryl Atkinson gave a talk at the University of Nevada in which she addresses some of the issues surrounding these astroturfing and these bots that we discuss. And she gives us a good framework for thinking about it from an individual standpoint, which is recognizing when information and stories are being presented that have obvious bias. There's a couple ways to recognize misinformation and disinformation and disingenuous information, which is use of inflammatory language. Number one, when a story is using emotionally charged and derogatory terms like nutty, like conspiracy, like crazy, prank, hack. Uh, I get that one a lot. Do you? Emotionally charged words like this, okay, this is inflammatory language, could be a signal that the article you're reading, this information is disingenuous. Another one is any perspective that asserts to debunk myths 
that don't actually exist. And we see this a lot. It's kind of used in clickbaity, sensational things like, oh, you know, we demyth this political perspective. Well, maybe that myth doesn't exist in the first place. It's just fabricated. And now we're going to tear it apart in this article. And it's very easy to do that because it's already a trumped up, very unrealistic thing. Be wary of that and recognize that that's something going on. Another thing to look out for is when things attack the people and the organizations around an idea rather than the idea itself, right? That's very basic. The straw man fallacy that we've all heard about probably at some point, but is still sometimes easy to miss when you're not being very analytical in the information that you're consuming. And finally, she says, question and criticize. This is a really good one, David, because we get a lot of these now. Question those that criticize whistleblowers and those that point out issues, uh, maybe like host on Ashes, Ashes, <laughs> These are articles and stories that are criticizing those that are questioning authority as opposed to questioning authority themselves. And that could be a sign, not necessarily for every case, but it could be a sign that something has an ulterior motive. And that's all very well and good, Daniel. And it makes me sound like I have to be some sort of Greek philosopher or logician in order to analyze the news <laughs> at every moment. But I think it really needs to I guess to, you got a long way to go. Yeah, a very long way to go. But I think we can really <laughs> break it down to something much more simple than that. And that's just instead of asking constantly, what is this trying to say? Like, what? What's going on? Is this real or is this not? Just go back to something that we bring up in that episode about Edward Bernays and propaganda. And that's asking just instead of what, but why? Why is this being pushed right now? Why is this story in the news? Why are we talking about this instead of that? So even if this thing is real or not real, it's beside the point because it's caught on in the media and people are talking about it for some reason. And questioning why that's the case is far more valuable, far more important, and far more potent in analyzing this news than the questions about whether it's authentic or not. David, that is a great point because that question, the why question, really encompasses everything. If you're just asking, is this real or not? You're only covering half of the particular issue. Because even if something is real, like you said, and like we talked about earlier, sometimes it's the information that's not being presented that is the larger mm -hmm. story. And so we have to constantly ask, why? What are the motives behind a particular thing being pushed in the media? And one relevant example of this, so Mariah King was on the episode last week, and she was in D.C. for the March for Our Lives protest. And not to say anything negative about the people that were protesting and the messages that they're fighting for, I think that's beside the point. The point is, it was very controlled. There was only one entrance on a street that was guarded by military trucks and personnel that you could even enter to participate in this march that, by the way, had a permit with the government. It was organized, so all the scripts were already predetermined. The government and the organizers of this march already knew what was going to be said. There was a specific time at which it would start and a specific time in which it would stop. And this message has been getting a lot of attention on the media. And at the same time that this is going on, that this national conversation about guns is occurring, well, all of the teachers in West Virginia have walked out of their schools. They went on strike for a week and a half in order to ask for a number of things from the state government. And we didn't hear about this at all. A whole state didn't have school for a week and a half and nothing happened. And then the same thing was happening in Oklahoma. Teachers also went on strike over there. But we've been so busy pushing this other narrative that media doesn't want to talk about these things that are actively influencing more people, but it's in the same place. This is a conversation about people being hurt in schools. Well, when teachers are being hurt, we ignore that because it's not something that the media is interested in pushing at the moment because it goes against a lot of economic narratives that we've been talking about as a country. 
So instead that news is buried and we focus on something else and we're allowed to say these things. But let's say these kids that are organizing these protests suddenly began asking for disarming police officers in addition to the public. Well, suddenly they would disappear. They wouldn't be allowed to say the things that they are. They wouldn't be given national airtime because those messages go against what the media wants out there. And I don't want to get too deep into this conversation because I've got my tinfoil hat on and we're in a conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiracy again. But these are things in a conspiracy. conspiracy. This is very inception. But this is the kind of things to remember and to always think about in terms of why. Good point, David. Again, something we will explore in a later episode is how do these messages become the prominent messages in our media outlets? Two more things I want to touch on just very quickly. So we briefly mentioned cryptographic verification. This is another thing that we can do in order to prove that audio and video is genuine. And this is one of the concerns Adobe had with their vocal product. They were going to integrate uh, some sort of hash within their re-engineered generated audio in order to verify that this audio is either untouched or has been altered by this technology. And the same thing we see with body cams, they're cryptographically signed so that we know they haven't been edited. This doesn't exist in most cameras yet, but it would be trivial for camera manufacturers to add this technology if the will is there. And so we can, as consumers, pressure both cell phone companies as well as actual camcorder and digital camera manufacturers to ask for this feature. It would be extremely valuable to journalists already, even without all this stuff. So this is something we can very quickly introduce. We can do the same with voice communications on FaceTime or with actual just regular phone talks. But again, these are problems that that we have to shift to technology creators. In the meantime, we do have things like Daniel's mentioned with Code Wars enabling at least some modicum of trust between ourselves while we're communicating. And the last thing I briefly want to touch on is just a reminder of the virality of bad news. And the idea that what is out there is all sifting around this marketplace of ideas. This marketplace isn't a fair thing. So these inflammatory, explosive, outrage pieces of news or clickbait or whatever it is, is much more likely to explode out there than a well-researched, long-form article that is difficult to consume and brings to question some of the things that you know or believe in as true. And one of these techniques is that it's very easy for me to come out and say something, publish it that's incorrect, but has an inflammatory headline. We talked about this in our sugar episode when we'll say, oh, you know, kids who eat lots of candy get thinner. And then you look at the study and it's not so true. Well, it's very easy to do this with this news where you have a headline that is incorrect or half correct. And then later on you say, oops, we were wrong about this and you issue a correction on it, but nobody ever reads the correction. And the initial headline that's inflammatory and exciting gets shared and becomes the actual fact. Once it happens, it's too late to correct it. Exactly. And this has become a sort of toolkit that PR companies use in order to push things because they know that they're being ethically dubious with it, but they can always recover in the end by saying, oh, our mistake, we didn't mean that. And that part gets left out of the conversation. This virality happens on the interesting piece of news, but not necessarily the correct one. So remember that when you share articles, don't just instantly jump on something that because it's been shared a lot, because it's easy to consume, because it's a meme with a couple lines of text. Instead, maybe focus on sharing these better quality pieces and you're going to be reading less, consuming less of them, but you're probably going to be better off for it. Of course, length isn't just a measure of quality, but it is something to keep in mind uh, in terms of these very short pieces and how they spread. And if you're still skeptical out there, look, there is evidence that just being aware that misinformation can come our way is enough to inoculate us against some of its larger effects. There was a study carried out at the University of Cambridge that took a group of people and exposed some of them to a small, quote, dose of information that was misleading. And by priming them to that fact, they were more likely to be skeptical 
of information that was false in the future. And the conclusion of this paper was, quote, finally, preemptively warning people about politically motivated attempts to spread misinformation helps promote and protect or inoculate public attitudes about the scientific consensus. So just like David mentioned how that scientific process can be hijacked, like we discussed in our sugar episode, bringing awareness to that fact can go a long way in preventing people from being duped by information that is disingenuous and misleading. So put on your tinfoil hats and join us next week for another episode of Ashes Ashes, where all your information is fake. Fake news. <laughs> if you want to learn more about any of this and read detailed sources to show you that this isn't all just in fact fake news, you can find that in addition to a full transcript of this show on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and effort goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show, nor we will ever purchase ads as effective as that might be. So if you enjoy this show and would like us to keep going, you can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. Send us an email, positive or negative. We'll read it. And if you have any stories related to this show, maybe we can share them on an upcoming show. Next week, we're turning to the environment for a serious problem that has drastic effects on all of our health, in addition to the health of the animals around us. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.